We've been going through a study together as a church through First and Second Samuel, but we're going to hit the pause button on that and come back in January. Take a few weeks just to focus on celebrating the birth of our Savior. And I think you know somebody had mentioned probably good being that we were coming up to the story of Amnon and Tamar. If you know that, you know we'll save the incest and murder for a little bit later and focus on the birth of Jesus at at this time of the year. And so we're going to go to Luke's Gospel, the first couple couple of chapters of Luke's Gospel, looking specifically today about hope. What was the longing of Israel at the time of Jesus' birth? Because they didn't really know the end of the Christmas story in these first couple chapters of Luke's Gospel. What were they hoping for? What was their expectation? What had been their history, their tradition, the prophecies from the Old Testament? When they were talking to one another around Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' birth and asking the question, what, where do you place your hope? What are you longing for? What are your expectations? What were the kinds of things that you would hear? And I'd say the thing with hope, in the Bible, it's, it's more substantial than when we use the word hope in English. You know, you, you think about kind of the most weak, pathetic way that we use the word hope. Well, I hope so. Basically, there's no substance to that statement. It's a happenstance sort of posture. It's a take it or leave it. I'm not really sure. But in the Bible, when you see the word hope, it often means a confident expectation, waiting, longing, anticipating something that is to come. I'd say that hope today can fall into one of three categories. There's either really misplaced hope, where you're hoping in the absolute wrong thing. Then there's misguided hope, which could be rooted in something substantial, but it's not appropriate at this time. And then there's that real deeply rooted life-giving hope. I think all three of those possibilities existed for Israel at the time of Jesus' birth as well. So the misplaced hope, that would be like, you know, Norm had mentioned before church, he was hoping that he wins the lottery so he has some Christmas money. Just kidding. Picking on Norm, I figured he could take it. But, you know, that kind of hope where it's not even, it's not tied to any objective reality. Norm doesn't even have a, a Powerball ticket in his pocket. It's just not going to happen, Norm. And even if you did, it's a one in 10 million chance, right? So that would be a misplaced hope. And the Bible talks about that sort of misplaced hope. One version is idolatry. That's hope in a man-made object. You know, that's something that we have created with our hands is worthy of glory and worship, and it's going to bring contentment, purpose, meaning. Today, idolatry takes the form of technology, entertainment, bank accounts, status, position. A lot of people go after those idols that are really man-made things, and that's a misplaced hope. Another misplaced hope would be to place hope in the fleeting pleasures of sin. In the Bible, uh, those that would go after pleasure that lasts for a moment, but in eternity leaves you empty and lost, and actually moments later leaves you empty and lost. And there's a lot of people today in that same personal place of misplaced hope in the fleeting pleasures of sin. There's another uh, misdirected hope, and that's in the misguided hope. Back in the, in the New Testament era, they had come through uh, a season of trusting in military force to bring hope. At the at time of Jesus' birth, the, the Maccabees, the period of the Maccabees, the Maccabean dynasty was not too far in their past. And so under these foreign oppressors that had come into 
Jerusalem and into Israel. They had placed hope in 167 B.C. in a priest named Mattathias. And when the order came from the Seleucid ruling governor, Antiochus Epiphanes, that Mattathias was to sacrifice a pig on an altar to a pagan god at a place that was designated to worship the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth, Mattathias, instead of obeying that command, took up arms. And he killed the messenger that Antiochus Epiphanes had sent. And he staged a revolt. And over the period of three years, the Maccabean revolt led to retaking the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and reestablishing sacrifices to worship the one true God. His third son, Judas Maccabees, was really the key person there. And that was where the celebration of Hanukkah comes from, where when finally after three years they took that temple mount and they they reclaimed the temple and there were eight candles on that menorah and each day of that worship of the one true God in proper worship, they lit a candle and celebrated that worship of God was restored in Jerusalem. And so around the time of Jesus' birth, that hope, was rekindled because you know the Maccabees the Maccabean period only lasted seven or eight years and then they were suppressed and put down and you know it led to other dynasties that came eventually we get to the time of Jesus birth where now the Romans are in control over the Jews there in the region of the promised land that God had given way back in the Old Testament some of the stories we've been reading in first and second Samuel and so There's people who have a misguided hope at the time of Jesus' birth, and they're saying, you know, maybe we need another Judas Maccabees to drive out the Romans and come with a sword and put put an end to the tyranny and the oppression using violence and force. And so that, that the whisperings and the murmurings that you may hear around Jerusalem, what are you waiting for? Where's your hope? What's your longing? I want another revolution. I want to throw off the Romans. How about you? That would be the buzz that you would hear. We see that same category of misguided hope today. You know, things that are rooted in reality in some way, or maybe there's been something in the past where this was true or it did work. We're hoping we can go back to that plan once again. Uh, You know, some of you were hoping that the Broncos would make it to the Super Bowl. It's happened before. It's still mathematically possible today, right? Cling to that hope. And then there's some of us... Same way with the Packers. We'll see. You know, but we've got hope in the American political system. We've got hope in a big wall to keep everybody out. We've got hope in our economic prowess, in our military force. Maybe we're more like the Romans at this time in, the his- in history than the Israelites who were the oppressed, the marginalized, those without privilege and status. And so to put ourselves in their shoes and to say, what would it be like to hope in an environment where you are the one who's oppressed? And, you know, there are people here in this room today and in our culture who are closer to the experience of the Israelites than those who have been granted things like power and status and position and wealth. And yet, in the end, all hopes in those human constructs are misguided, misplaced, and do not last any longer than the Hasmonean dynasty did. But there is a third category of hope, which is 
rooted in reality, life-giving, it's a sure thing, there's an expectation that is fulfilled. And today, you know, I'm thinking there are some people right here in the room who have that. I see Scott sitting over here. He's got a new baby girl at home. And it was just a couple weeks ago that Christy was starting to look, you know, like there was a confident expectation that something was definitely happening. It was either a watermelon seed last summer or there was a baby on the way. And what do you know, baby Kate joined the family a couple weeks ago. You know, and now there's another young lady here today, Aaliyah. I, I hear she's got a, a ring on her finger that Jacob has given her. There's a, there's a hope and expectation that there might be a wedding happening at some point because she said yes. So there's some excitement there. There's another couple sitting back by the sound booth here, Brian and Roseanne, that, that are coming up on that, on that baby due date as well. And so an expectation that is rooted in something objectively true, something good, something that we have to look forward to with excitement and anticipation. The psalmist talks about that kind of hope in Psalm 33, verses 20 through 22. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him. Because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. If you're placing your hope in the steadfast love of the Lord, it will not let you down. It will last. And there may be difficulties and trials that come, and yet that is a sure foundation for hope. And so as we look at this question of what is Israel's hope around the time of Jesus' birth, there's four things I'd like to point us to. And we'll look specifically at the first couple chapters of Luke to hear what are some of the words that are coming out of the mouths of the key characters in these story. Gabriel, the messenger, the angel that God sends to Zechariah and to Mary. What are some of the clues in what Gabriel says that will show us what Israel was hoping in? Or the words out of Mary's and Zechariah's mouths in reply to what the angel has said. Or the shepherds as the angels appear to them. Or Simeon or Anna, some of the, the older saints who've been waiting for God to work in a new way. And so the four aspects of Israel's hope that I see is, is A, a people. There's a hope in a people. A people that God can use, a people prepared for God to work in a new way in our time. Not like the people who have been unfaithful in the past. Not like the people who have gone after sin, scorning God, turning their back on Him, but a new people who are prepared and ready and excited and anticipating what God is going to do and they're on board with God's plans. Israel had a hope in a king. Not the kind of kings that they had seen under Rome, but the right king. The right king who would be a son of David. Who would be on the throne as God had promised David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. A king who would lead the nations in bowing. That all the nations would bow down like it talks about back in Isaiah 49. And that not just a bowing in submission or service to that king, but also that blessing would go to all the nations of the earth as God had promised to Abraham even further back in Genesis 12. So hope in a king. Another part of Israel's hope was hope in an exodus. 
And this had been a, a theme throughout their history. That God had led from sin, pain, slavery, bondage. And that God had led to promise, blessing, territory, provision. That God had been faithful time and again to his faithful people. And they had, they had remembrance of Eden when Adam and Eve took that fruit and were banished. And yet there was hope of the promises to come as God set into motion a redemption plan. And they had a, rem- a, a remembrance of Egypt where after 430 years in slavery, God sent a deliverer and he said, I will set you free and lead you to the land that I've promised. And another exodus years later after they had been in the promised land, after King David's throne was established, after his son Solomon had built a temple to worship God in Jerusalem, and now generations later of unfaithful kings, God's people led off into slavery. And now they're in Babylon waiting with expectation that God would lead them in a new exodus, that they could return to worship the one true God in the land and in the temple. And so now, once again, there's that hope in Israel. Is there going to be an exodus from the slavery of Rome? Put a question mark on that, because God's about to answer their hopes in an unexpected way. And finally, Israel's hope in the temple, which really symbolizes proper worship. And so they're they're hoping in a place where the one true God can be worshipped as he should be worshipped, as he must be worshipped. So this was Israel's hope at the time of Jesus' birth. And I think it's good for, you know, as we study these questions in Luke 1 and 2, to not just in an intellectual, detached way find out what did they think back then, but to also ask this question at this Christmas time of our own hearts. Where is your hope? Where is your confident expectation? What are you waiting for? What are you longing for? So let's look first here at at the right people, that longing for the right people, that expectation of a people prepared. These these are a couple of verses from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, as the angel Gabriel comes and speaks to Zechariah. And Gabriel, you know, whatever your idea of an angel is, Gabriel blows that away. He's not a precious moments figurine. He's not a, a, you know, a cute little feminine angel with a halo. Um, his name in Hebrew means strong man of God. And usually, when, uh, every time, I believe, when, when a person encounters an angel, they think they're going to die. Make a precious moments figurine of that. I'll put it on my fireplace mantle. So Zechariah is standing in fear. It says in verse 12, Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him. And now what's part of the message that the angel brings in verse 16? Gabriel says to Zechariah that his son, John the Baptist, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. The right kind of people who had been going in one direction, but there would be repentance that comes, a turning, a going toward God and away from sin. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. We'll we'll look that up in a moment. There's an Old Testament reference there, an allusion 
to the end of Malachi. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So a lot, of, a lot of what the angel is prophesying here is in fulfillment of the last verse of the Old Testament. If you flip back just a few pages in your Bible, right before you get to Matthew's Gospel, before 400 years of silence which divide the Old Testament and the New Testament, here's the very last verse of Malachi. Last two verses. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. There's a prophecy that ends the Old Testament of someone who's going to come to usher in the great and awesome day of the Lord. That word, day of the Lord, it's got various meanings throughout God's word. In one sense, it's at the very end of time. When the king finally comes to establish his reign forever and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is the Lord. At other times, it's, it's the day of the Lord is a day of judgment that happens somewhere in the middle of history. I think in context of Malachi's prophecy and Luke tapping into that, in this case, the day of the Lord is Jesus arriving on the scene. Emmanuel, God with us. God is interacting in human history in a brand new, entirely way that no one had hoped for or expected. A people prepared, looking forward to that great and awesome day of the Lord, even though the the fulfillment of that promise was in an unexpected way. And some of the elements that we see as that people is preparing, there's this talk of one generation having their heart turned to the other generation. The fathers to the children, the children to the fathers. This is a move away from self-focus to God-focus and other-focus. Something we need in our country today. You know, there's a lot of parents that are so busy looking out for number one that they have no concern for the next generation. And there's a lot of children who are fine with discarding mom and dad, you know, as they, as they reach adulthood or even later adulthood. And yet there's something that happens when there's a people prepared whose eyes are fixed on the eternal kingdom of God that takes our eyes off of me and my needs and puts them on the generation beneath me and above me. That there's a concern that God puts on our hearts that looks like God's heart. That says, I care not only for my own interests, but also for the interests of others. A people that are prepared in practical ways to focus on God and His glory and on others around us. It's good to see that in our church as we've got people investing in the next generation, working in kids' ministry and youth ministry and saying, you know, there's someone coming up behind me that needs to be discipled in their faith. I'll do that. Or those that will look to those who are later in life, past retirement, and say, you know, I'll, I will show love and I'll demonstrate love in a practical way by spending some time, by offering some assistance. 
And that's one way that the world looks in and says there's something different about these people of God. Something that reorients their priorities. That's the prophecy of Malachi. That's the advent of Jesus at work. It starts to affect our relationships with others. How do we be that people that's described here by the angel? To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah is hearing this message about his son who is to be born, whose name will be John, and we'll meet him later in the Gospels. Well, John goes out proclaiming, informing, instructing. And there's some who have ears to hear and some who do not. And, you know, as, as we're reading this and, and given the choice, would, would you like to be a person prepared for the great and awesome day of the Lord? Or would you like to be a person not prepared? The, the answer is pretty simple, right? We would like to be in that former category as those who are the right kind of people who are prepared, longing that we're not the only ones, but that there is a people who are prepared, who are watching and waiting and praying. As, as you bring that question to your Bible, you'll see that there are many parables that Jesus tells. The youth has been going through the parable of the virgins who are lighting their lamps and preparing for Jesus' return. So there is that aspect of watching. There's also prayer and getting on li- in line, our hearts in line with God's purposes and plans. Saying, God, what you will in our world, that's what I want. Your plan, Lord, make that my plan. Help me to see people through your eyes. And through prayer, God transforms our hearts and minds. And then there's the the truth of God's word that we are to not only hear, but also do. There is the living as the people who are prepared, that it affects our lives. There's the proclamation that the king is coming. And even in declaring that, our hearts are are more prepared for his return. And so we believe, we repent from sin, we follow him, we take up our cross. It's in that daily obedience and faithfulness that we live as a people prepared. That's the kind of people that God works through. And we can encourage one another to move in that direction, to orient our lives in that way. So the angel tells Zechariah that his boy is going to be a part of preparing the right kind of people, so that when the hope of Israel arrives, they're not unaware that that day has come, the glorious day of the Lord is here. There's something new. God is working in a new way. Their hopes are filled. Now we hear this aspect in in some of the other stories here in, in the first chapters of Luke. Not just the right people, but the right kind of king, the right king himself. A king who will move from oppression to freedom. Not a king who's going to keep people under his thumb, dominate them, lord it over them, but a king who brings freedom and brings life and brings blessing. So the the angel now appears to Mary later in chapter 1 and gives some promises starting in verse 33. Listen listen to this portion of what the angel promises. The end of 32, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This this son named Jesus, which means 
salvation. It means deliverer, rescuer. This Jesus, he will have a great throne. He will reign. He'll be in, in line with King David and the promises God gave to him way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. His kingdom will be forever. And Mary hears this and, and, uh, through the, the simple ears of a young woman. She's just asking a practical question. How will this be since I'm a virgin? And this is only an act of God. This is a, a king like no other king. This is a king who's going to set all things right. It's not the kind of king whose dynasty dies out because he gets old. This is a king whose throne is established forever. And it is in fulfillment to what Israel had hoped for, the right king. Back on the throne, a king of the descendant of David. Jesus fulfills that, but in an entirely unexpected way. Israel really had no concept at this time of God coming himself in the flesh and stepping into human history to establish that kingdom that would never end. They had resurrection hope, but that was for all people at the end of time, not for one man in the middle of history. So there's this promise. Now get ready, there's something unexpected coming. Your longing is going to be fulfilled, but in a way you had never anticipated. And Mary responds with a, a song of praise beginning in verse 46. Let's look at a few aspects of what Mary declares because it gives us clues again of what is Israel hoping for. Verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The hope of Israel here in Mary's words that their strength that may fit with the expectation that, like the, the Maccabean dynasty, the deliverer would come to drive out the Romans. There'd be strength in his hand. That there would be those who are brought down and others who are lifted up, those who are filled and others who are emptied. That this king would come to set all things right, to order things as they should be. You know, it's not right that the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. It should be the opposite way. And the right king on the throne will come to sort everything out. That the wicked are held to account for their actions. And those who are righteous and faithful are blessed and lifted up. That God's covenant to Abraham is fulfilled. That Israel will be blessed to be a blessing to all the world. That expectation and that longing is there. And then Zechariah also at the end of chapter 1 speaks some words of prophecy that give us a clue as to what Israel is hoping for in their king. Look at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. There's a hope for God's visitation, 
God's redemption, God restoring all things to His original good plan. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And now Zechariah speaking to his young son, John the Baptist, You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Whereby, and here's the good parts, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. There's hope that the right people and the right king will lead to sins forgiven, a people who are cleansed, like a sunrise, like a path that is well illuminated. The shadows are dispelled. The fear is gone. There's a time of peace where God's people can worship God without fear, but with holiness and with righteousness. Does that sound pretty good? Is that where our hope is today? Because, you know, there's a lot of other inferior places that we could put our hope. In sin's fleeting pleasures. You know, at the time, as you go through the gospel, you'll hear sad stories about Jewish people, sex within Judaism, that had very misplaced hopes. The Sadducees were hoping in political power and strength. The Pharisees were hoping in technical, precise, correct details that they could use to judge everyone else. And yet there's a few who had eyes to see and ears to hear what God was doing. And as they heard this message of hope, spoken by the angel and in the words of the song of Mary and in the prophecy of Zechariah, there was some, a spark of hope that was beginning to fan into a flame. And they're starting to get it and they're saying, yeah, what, that's what we really need is a people prepared and the right king on the throne and a turning from sin to God and a reorienting of our priorities from focus on self to the next generations and the generations before us and on glorifying the one true God. Longing for the right king. We'll look at a few more examples here in chapter 2 because that king, as he comes, he's going to sort everything out. And in the message that the angels bring to the shepherds, we see some of that hope fulfilled. Verse 11 of chapter 2. You know, once again, the, the, the shepherds are filled with fear as the angels appear. They're not making figurines, taking selfies. The angels say, fear not. And then in verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, which means the King, 
the christened one, the anointed one, Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. In the words of the angels to the shepherds, we see some of the hope of what happens when the right king is on the throne, when he arrives on the scene and he begins to sort all things out. There's a savior. You don't need a savior unless there's a really bad enemy and you're in a very bad predicament. Okay? You know, there's a, if, if you're swimming and everything's fine, you don't need a life vest, a lifeguard, a buoy. But when you're drowning... That's when you need a Savior. And you come up and you gasp and you yell, help. So the promise of a Savior tells us part about the hopes of Israel. It's a bad time in history. Things are dark. Things are bleak. There's oppression. There's a need of salvation. Have you ever attempted to share the gospel with someone who already has everything they could ever want? And you feel like you're hitting a brick wall. And until a person has an awareness of their need and the futility of those things that they've hoped in, their heart is not softened to the gospel. doesn't mean you don't continue to scatter the seeds of truth, but you need to pray that God will even allow the circumstances in their life to bring them to Him. And maybe you can remember that in your own story, where in your own pursuits, you were, you, you were enjoying the pleasures of sin, as light and momentary as they were. There's another Friday night coming. And I'll make it through Monday morning looking forward to that hope until maybe week after week, month after month, year after year, you started to realize this is empty. Is this all that life is? Or maybe once you'd gotten the the fame or the position or the money, you found out it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Most of us have not achieved that in this life, so we keep looking to, you know, man, if I could be like that Hollywood actor, man, is he ever, he must really be joyful because of the number of private jets he has. Just read the front page of any of the tabloids in the checkout aisle. You'll find out there's not joy down those paths of worshiping things made by human hands or the pleasures of sin. And so the angels come to the shepherds and they say there is a deeper, life-giving place of hope and joy, a Savior who will rescue you from the futility of pursuing these things that you have in your minds and in your hearts. He is the King. And it's not just peace on earth, like the Christmas song says, but it's on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You know, I think it's every beauty pageant speaker has said, you know, what, what I want is world peace. And that's God's heart as well. And yet when the king comes, he sorts it all out. You know, if the wicked are experiencing peace, none of us are happy with that prospect, particularly if the wickedness has been perpetrated against us and our loved ones. We want the wicked to experience the opposite of peace, judgment, 
And as Jesus comes on the scene, he fulfills this hope and expectation in an unexpected way that even those who are ethnically Israel, who put themselves in an arrogant way in the category of recipients of God's blessing, find out that at times they are the very enemies of God. And the real problem here is not Rome. It's the problem of sin. And there is an exodus that's going to happen, but it's not a sword to drive out the Romans. It's a cross to drive out sin in the grave. A final exodus that will bring victory because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Longing for God to sort things out. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when you come to Jesus and surrender to him and you accept his shed blood as the payment for your sins, God looks on you as his son or his daughter, as one with whom he is pleased. And there is peace that's promised to us. Where's your hope? There were a couple of old timers around here in the Christmas story they knew what to hope in. They'd been paying attention. They'd been reading their Bibles. They'd been spending time in prayer and in seeking God. And their hope is well-founded. They're, they're examples to us at the end of chapter 2 of having that deeply rooted, substantial hope that will not disappoint. One of them is a, is a man named Simeon. We see him in verse 25. Chapter 2, now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. He's waiting for Israel to be consoled, that the pain will be gone, that there will be a new time of healing and hope to come for Israel. He's filled with God's Spirit. He, he is righteous. That means he's walking down God's path. And he's devout. He's faithful. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. And said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Look at some of those aspects of what Simeon is telling us about the hope of Israel as the Messiah is, com is coming on the scene, as he's holding Jesus there on the occasion of his circumcision, what the law had required, the custom of the law. And Simeon is speaking of a time of peace, salvation for God's people. And then notice in that verse 32, there's a promise both for the Gentiles, which are the non-Jewish people, the non-Israel people, and also for Israel. For the Gentiles, there's hope for a light of revelation that the eyes of the Gentiles will be open. This is the very promise that God made way back in the first book of the Bible 
Genesis to that man that God had called Abram that was going to be a father of the nation of Israel. And his plan and purposes for Israel was that they would be the model of what it is to walk in covenant faithfulness with God. They would be the picture of putting hope in that life-giving source, the maker of heaven and earth and his good plans. That was his plan for Israel all along. God said to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing. Through you, all the families or all the nations of earth will be blessed. And Simeon, God's Spirit has revealed to him that that prophecy from the Old Testament, that promise to Abraham, is being fulfilled at this great and awesome day of the Lord that has begun because of the birth of our Savior. Light of revelation to the Gentiles, but not just for the Gentiles. Also a plan for ethnic Israel, for glory to your people Israel. That this Messiah, as he comes to sort all things out, he's the king that all people will have a chance to worship him and glorify him as the king. So these are the hopes that Simeon describes for us. Well, then there's a, a special elderly woman described just a few verses later. Her name is Anna, and she's a prophetess. Verse 37 tells us that she had lived as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping, with fasting and prayer, night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This was a woman who spent time in God's house. She spent time, substantial time, in worship and in fasting and in prayer. It says night and day. Her eyes were focused on the things of God. Her hope and expectation was in Him. She tapped into that life-giving source. And now she comes up and she's, because of that heart posture, she's thankful. She's giving thanks to God. And she's bold. She's proclaiming to those who have been waiting for Jerusalem to be redeemed, for God's kingdom purposes to be fulfilled. She's saying, this is the time. I think Anna really typifies, depicts for us, exemplifies what it is to be a people prepared. As the angel had promised to Zechariah that his own son, John the Baptist, would prepare people that I think look like Anna, that are saying, get ready, the king is here, God is working in a new way. Give thanks, spend time in God's house, worship, fast, pray, the redemption is here. Redemption means to make new. And that's what Jesus came to do. So Israel's hopes for the right king on the throne, that the king would sort things out, spoken through the mouths of some of the characters here in Luke chapter 1 and 2. And this is just the beginning of the story. But I think it invites us to ask, where is our hope today? Maybe today, at this time of the year, you've gotten caught up in all the commercialism and the pressure of you know, having as many Christmas lights outside your house as the neighbors do and getting all the, those gifts that are advertised to us and pumped at us and that if our loved ones don't get this, they're not going to love us as much. Worshiping things made by human hands. 
that would be a misguided, misplaced source of hope. Maybe it's in the new year that there will be a new level of physical fitness or health that you'll experience or some monetary possession that you'll have, some, some tangible object that will bring you hope. And that's all going to leave you empty ultimately. But there is a place where we can store up treasures today where moth and rust do not corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal. And when we place our hope in the kingdom of God, that's a deep well that brings life to us and to those in our lives. Let's place our hope as Israel did in a people who is prepared for the return of our king, that great and awesome day of the Lord when he comes in all of his glory to firmly establish his kingdom. Let's live in light of that reality this Christmas season. We're not just people who only know the first two chapters of the gospel story about a little baby in a manger. We know the victorious warrior king who defeats sin and the grave, dies on the cross, rises again, and says, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am there you may one day be. That's our hope. Our hope is in the right king who we know as God with us. Our hope is in an exodus from the desert of sin and to the promise of God's eternal love and blessing for those who are called his children. Our hope is not in a temple because the veil in the temple was torn in two on the day of Jesus' death on the cross. And that symbolized that we all have access to the throne of grace. We can come boldly to him. But our hope is in what the temple symbolized, proper worship of the maker of heaven and earth. And this Christmas season, let's put our hope in those places where we will find life. Let's proclaim that hope to others that we encounter. Proverbs 13, 12, and I'll leave with this as we go to prayer. It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Let's go to him today and ask him to take the hopes that we've had when we walked in here today and reorient them, change them into a hope that's well-founded as he works on our hearts. Can we stand together in the Lord's presence?